Welcome to Under the Skin, where I ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, of the history that we are told. This show is sponsored by me and my Rebirth Tour. The next couple of shows are sold out, but there are some tickets available for Northampton, 6th of July, Grimsby, 10th of July, Regent's Park, London, 30th of July, Open Air Gig, Regent's Park, 30th of July. Oh, you've got to see me open air. That's when I come into my own. I, I live out there. Russellbrand.com if you want tickets. Now it's time for Under the Skin. listen to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Today I'm here with Professor Simon Critchley, an English philosopher who currently teaches at the New School in New York and has held visiting professorships at numerous universities. He writes about the history of philosophy, political theory, religion, ethics, aesthetics, literature and theatre. And his most recent books include Humour, On Bowie and ABC of Impossibility. Cornel West called him the most powerful and provocative philosopher now writing about the complex relations of ethical subjectivity and reinvigorated democracy. So the fact that it's Cornel West, and it's such an amazing compliment, except it's really, really specific compliment as well, <laughs> writing about the complex relations of ethical subjectivity and reinvigorated democracy. Yes. On here, Simon, it helps to stay very unnaturally close to the unnaturally microphone. Unnaturally close to the microphone, okay. Yes, as if you're murmuring into it. Okay. Um, Simon, I was very excited to have you on as a guest because Brad Evans, friend of the show and component of the show now, like recommended that I watch some of your work on YouTube, which I did. I watched this brilliant lecture that you gave, and like normally, if you if you when I look at a YouTube video, and I think that this is relatively standard, if something's more than two minutes, I think fuck off. Now this thing was an hour. I watched all of it, and it was your analysis of the significance of football as a sort of a metaphor for socialism and the poetry of football, even though it paradoxically is immersed in corporate and commercial yeah. culture. So I was excited to have you on, and I hope we'll cover okay. some of that. But the first thing I want to talk to you about. What is it, philosophy? Well... Do you want any more basic than that? (laughs) What is philosophy? Because this thing under the skin, it's because I'm at the SOAS doing a degree in religion and global politics. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm getting educated later in life. And uh, I want to, you know, like, sometimes I realise that I'm out on some teetering peninsula shouting my mouth off and there's no foundation to loads of the stuff I'm saying. So, for a start, what is philosophy? Philosophy is... Um, a way of raising general questions. It's a simple. It's a, in that sense, philosophy is something that appears in the democracy of Athens in the fifth century BC. This character Socrates goes around asking questions, and the question that he likes to ask is, "What is justice?" And people will say, "Well, justice for the Athenians means that. Justice for the Spartans means that." Socrates says, but what is justice? What actually is justice? So what, what is philosophy in many ways is that question, that what is question, the idea that you can raise a question with it and you require a universal response is what philosophy is. Those questions are questions that Socrates introduces into, um, into, into, in, in, into culture in the two and a half thousand years ago. And, and since he did that, none of the major questions has been resolved. Oh, that's so fascinating. Absolutely no progress has been made on any of the major issues because human beings ask the same questions. 
it was my question was gonna be if like if there is a universalism how can there be narrative evolution because you would be able to establish absolutes and within absolutes there would be it would be no transition. So, like, what is, what has the history of philosophy taught us from these early ideas of what is justice? Where have we been through that? Like, there is there one philosophy narrative that are you know like are the the heavy hitters, the sort of I don't know the Champions League places of philosophers, right. Nietzsche, Sartre, yeah. Heidegger, yeah. the ones yeah. I've heard of. Yeah. Is there an actual? Like leading up to Derrida, Foucault, and then who's that one? De Gaulle or something like one that's subsequent to that. Right. People hear about what's the one I mean? De Guise, Deleuze, Deleuze, Deleuze. Deleuze. Yeah. yeah. So like, seems, is that is that a is that an artificial narrative or is there like no? no, no, no there is there's, there's a narrative and it, but it depends how you tell it and it's contested. But the, the and there is a Champions League. But the I mean the key thing for me is that Socrates was described himself as a gadfly. A, gaffle, a cow fly flying around the great stinking rump of Athenian democracy. He described himself like that. And he asked difficult questions. And as repayment for asking those difficult questions, he was put on trial by the city of Athens for corruption of the youth and impiety towards the gods. And he was invited to kill himself, which he did. <laughs> we invite you to kill we yourself. You, we invite you to die. <laughs> That's right. He could, he could, and so, so philosophy is, is asking those difficult, tricky questions. And the, the cost of that can be your, your life in certain extreme cases. There's a bunch, there's a lot of philosophers who've died for raising difficult questions. But, so and also, then is now, may I say, yeah. please remember your point. Like, then is now that what people do to bring you down, if you start trying to get some new ideas into the conversation, people go, you're, oh, don't do that. Think of the children. You're upsetting the youth. Think right. of the young people like the Daily Mail would now. And impiety imp- to the gods, like as if there the is some standard to which mm-hmm. we're to adhere. But really, we know that both of these things, corrupting the youth, impiety to the gods, mean you're starting to fuck with a powerful mate, so you best kill yourself. Here's the M-lock, ta-da. Yeah, exactly. But so it's the same deal then as now. Uh, it's the same deal then as now, and uh, the purpose of philosophy is to corrupt the youth, right? That's what we should be doing. If we're not corrupting the youth, we're doing something wrong. If people are just... <sighs> living their lives in accordance with what they've been told by their families and the people around them, then they're going to be kind of dead in a certain way. Philosophy is a way of livening things up by asking difficult questions. And and that's why kids are often... I've done some stuff in New York with teaching philosophy for kids, and you can go down to about eight years old, but oh, ten good. years You've found our level. So what, what, do you, <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with them? Well, for example, one thing which is great is, you know, you, you'll take a... You know, you say, you give them a bit of chewing gum and you'll say, here's a bit of chewing gum. Describe the properties of this piece of chewing gum. They'll say, well, it's hard, it's long, it's rectangular. And they say, now chew it. Um, chew it. And now how's it look? It's soft, it's gooey, it's something. So how, why is it the same thing? By virtue of what is that thing, chewing gum, the same thing? Are there certain essential properties of chewing gumness, which, uh, or is there some, or can we trust the external Appearances of things. Well, we can't trust external appearances of things because they can change. You can say you have a, a candle which is hard and then you light it, it goes soft. Why is that the same thing? And then you're into a question about what are the, what, what are the nature of objects. And, yeah. kids, and kids will go into that. You the know. nature of the material mechanical world. Exactly. The, the, the chewing gum is still, like, if you see the world <laughs> in a materialistic and me- mechanistic way, the chewing gum is still the same. But the chewing gum is interfaced dialectically with a mouth being masticated. Right. And it is now a different thing. Yeah. It's different oh, I wish I was in that class. I'd have done well.
So, so if well, it's, I am forty-two. Right. <laughs> so if it's not, so it's not, so if it's not entirely a different thing. So by virtue, what is the, what is it the same? And so what is are, a thing even like the because chewing gum plus chewing is a different thing to the chewing gum pre-chewing. Exactly. It, like so that ha- it has a composite in identity that includes the chewing. So is any of us alone? Are any of us individuals? Am I really me? Are you really you? If we're breathing the same air, if we're having this conversation, is there such a thing as time? Are we not one constant thing? That's philosophing. Cool. I just knew I knew I could do it. I knew I could. And, and it's not. And it's not. And also, the thing about Socrates is that he was. There's a paradox about Socrates, which is interesting. On the one hand, he was said the Oracle at Delphi said he was the wisest man in Greece, right? But he also always insisted he, he knew nothing, and he never gives answers. So he raises the question: What is justice, or what is love, or what is truth? But he doesn't give you an answer to the question. He demolishes the opinions that people have, and he leaves you kind of with a kind of, you know, a shrug, and he gives you with a method of inquiry... I'd get on my fucking nerves, wouldn't you? Like, if he kept doing that. I'd say, you've been ruining all of my ideas, Socrates. Can you just give me a leg to stand on? But this was because he wanted to lead you individually to reach... Exactly, exactly. So truth doesn't consist in, you know, what you're told... It's consistent in what you find out by it for yourself. Have you got some quote that uh, Gareth, the producer of the show, just held up a thing that says, uh, the beginning of philosophy is disappointment. Can you explain what that means? That's something I have first said in my published work a long time ago, but it, st- it, st- it stays with me. So there are two ways to think about philosophy. Philosophy in Aristotle, he says it begins in wonder. Wonder at the universe, wonder at the cosmos. And that sounds nice. I like it. Yeah. I say philosophy begins with disappointment. It begins with a sense that the world is a tangled, compromised, kind of bloody mess, and we feel dissatisfaction in relationship to it, and that allows us to ask, ask questions. And the two main forms of disappointment that I focused on in work going back in the day are political disappointment and religious disappointment. So political disappointment is disappointment that, you know, you live in a world where Justice is clearly not being done, which then raised, allows you to raise the question, what is justice? And at that point, you need something like an ethics, a morality to begin to be able to answer that question. That's one side of things. Religious disappointment is the idea that if you, if you know, for example, that God exists and is in his heaven and you're going to be okay in the afterlife, that kind of shuts that down. But if you begin with the idea that God is dead, that um, all those questions of faith are kind of up in the air, off the table, and then you have to figure those things out for yourself. The wonder-disappointment dichotomy, though, is just the same as the optimist-pessimist of human nature. Like, isn't wonder and disappointment, in a sense, the same thing that you could approach this abyss with awe and fascination, or you could approach this uh, this sort of wilderness of ignorance with fear trepidation and, and with with a, a glancing back at what you've the certainty that you've known glancing back at the yeah glancing back but that, that certainty's gone and um you know so what Theresa may said the other day what we need now is certainty we don't we never need certainty right mm. knowledge is not for a start, certainty. there ain't no certainty there ain't no except certainty. for death here it comes tick tock tick tock tick tock Right, that's that's going to come for sure. Yeah, I'm a bit annoyed about that. Of course, I was rather hoping to go on forever, but uh, it's, it's some time away. It's some time away. Yes, yes, and also like the uh, there's nothing to suggest that the nature of consciousness beyond personal identity is transient. 
It could it could be it could be out there in the cosmos. Not it personal could be... individuated consciousness, but like the equivalent of whatever's masticating that chewing gum, the chewing gumness that requires a secondary agency. Could be that would make you a spinozist. Or what? A spinozist. What does that mean? A follower of Spinoza. Oh Spinoza. What does Spinoza say? Sp- Spinoza says it's either nature or God. Yeah. And he says and basically Spinoza. Uh, says that nature is one huge substance of which we're all parts and it's alive. It's a huge animated thing and different modalities, different uh, parts of that substance are us. We're parts of that. And when we die, we continue in some other part of that substance. So in a sense, the substance goes on. And that's a nice way of looking at things. I would say that that that, that's we and I and those kind of personalised terms might be somewhat moot in a, a, a sort of a conceptual universe that knows no otherness, where there is a total unity and oneness. Yeah. You know those transcendental meditation people? Yes. Like uh, their, their philosophy is derived from Hinduism and they talk about, um, they said, in fact, the way I understood it rather well, was he said that in this tattoo, which is a Sanskrit tattoo, mm-hmm. happens to say, I asked for... Uh, go with the flow, but there is no go with the flow in that language. It says, in fact, fuck you. No, it says, uh, no, it says uh, there is only the flow. There is only the right. flow. And when I showed it to the filmmaker David Lynch, he goes, that line is the unified field from which all phenomena emerges, that there is unity and temporalness yeah. all emerging. from, And that's that Spinoza idea, right? I suppose, I mean, he's got wouldn't me- go back to the unified field going, bloody hell, that was mental. I was just in Essex. I support West Ham. But now I'm part <laughs> of uh, the Amazon jungle again or the rings of Saturn. There would be no sense of self. There would just be all like, but isn't that, don't you experience that even as a human sometimes? Like I am not Simon Cr- you can, yeah, you can feel that in relation to nature, in relation to something that's vast and oceanic and something like the shore. I mean, think about Lynch, which is really interesting, is that Lynch has got... I remember one of the strangest books I read was his Catching the Big Fish. Yeah, yeah that was for meditation, wasn't it? Yeah, it was for meditation. And he talks about how he, how he practices, what it means to him. And I was struck by the fact that this seems to have kind of... a a weird relation or no relationship to his films. His films, he you know, he uses transcendental meditation techniques to kind of dip down and pick out this stuff that then is formed into these weird, dark, strange, interesting narratives that he produces in his movies. Yes. And he has nothing to say about them, which is good. You'll say, you know, with the film, when it's done, it's finished. There it is. Look at it. Then people, um, like, I've met a couple of them sort of like, inter- curiously, they're comparable characters, Morrissey and David Lynch, both artists that I admire that mm-hmm. absolutely will not critically discuss their work because yeah. I think that the work is the embodiment of itself. It doesn't require a secondary commentary. Like, and, um, and like, but it seems to me from like, I don't know loads about David Lynch's work and I don't know loads about David Lynch, but having what I've observed about the sort of the relationship between those two things is he is interested in consciousness and the way that consciousness relates to itself. And like so those sort of dreamscape movies that are about like, the, you know, there's primalness, there's yeah. violence and sexuality. Right. So it seems to me that he's interested in, like, because this bloke who like, taught me to meditate, Bob Roth, he runs David Lynch's uh, Transcendental Meditation Foundation. And he said of David Lynch, and I thought this was telling, that he's he said David would be as interested in a rabbit at any point of its cycle, a rabbit being formed, born, getting old, 
decaying and rotting. Like mm. he would, and like that again is a bit like that chewing gum thing. That right. What is the essential? And there's lots of rabbits in Lynch's films. In oh. Inland Empire, there's lots of rabbits. Uh, there are rabbit rabbits pop up, and because you're going to go down a rabbit hole with Lynch, oh. Lynch is going to take you down. And what you find down a rabbit hole, you find a rabbit. <laughs> Lynch doesn't tell you what the rabbit means, but the rabbit is there. And so Lynch is a brilliant example. I don't think he's very clear about what he's doing in the sense. I think his movies are a lot weirder and stranger and uh, odder and darker than he make. He can make sense of them. But um, but the idea that there's a there's a form that the movie finds and it's finished and he's not going to talk about it, I completely understand. Yeah, I mean, I, Mor- Morrissey too, I guess. Yeah, I, sort of I think it's interesting when people are like that. Um, Does Morrissey meditate? No. Fuck no. I think Morrissey is the opposite of meditation, contemplation, right. possibly reflection, right. introspection, surely. But yeah, it's a nice cup of tea. Well, um, <laughs> Simon, can you talk to me about uh, football, like yeah. uh, football as a, analogous to socialism? Can you give us a version of that? Uh, football is. I kick off from the idea that, you know, football's association football. Association football. So the idea of association. And from the, the idea of association, I make a jump from association to sociability to socialism. And I, I make the claim that the form of football is socialism. And back that up with quotes from Clough, from Shankly, from Xavier Zanetti, Paul Breitner, all these figures on the left who are involved in the football world. And then we have the question of if football is this kind of, football is an association of, it's not an individualistic sport, it's a collective sport, it's a team sport, and it's about the figuration of players, you know, the, the, the grid, as Barcelona used to say, the grid of players. So it's a collective sport. And um, so for me, it's a kind of, it gives us an idea of socialism. But huge problem with that is that how do we deal with money? and the presence of money in the game and capital in the game. And so I think in many ways that uh, football is an image of our world at its best and worst simultaneously. It gives us a sense of what it would mean to associate with people, you know, as players and between players and fans. And those things, all the football teams have their roots in in social clubs, in churches, in kind of ordinary working class organisations. At the same time, they're completely defined now by money and capital and the exchange of players and foreign ownership and all of that. And so I think football gives us an image of our, our, our world at its best and its worst simultaneously. So it, therefore, it's really interesting to, to look at. You're a Liverpool fan. I'm a Liverpool fan. And what's the sign? What, what do you think is special about Bill Shankly beyond him being like a really successful football manager? He was a, he was like Corbyn in the sense in which he was able to kind of um, he had a very close relationship with the fans and a close relationship with the players. He was able to cultivate uh, a certain ethos, a certain discipline in the team. And um, and that communicated itself over thirty odd years, and then Ferguson knocked Liverpool off their perch with a different version of that. Ferguson was doing something, you know, analogous. Shankly was a great manager because he was, it was that 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 holy link between the team uh, and the players and the people running the team, and the idea that there's a commonality of purpose, and this isn't just about winning. It's not just about Chelsea, this is about the expression of a way of life, a city, a certain way of looking at the world. 
and and my family's from Liverpool, and you know there are a lot of silly things said about Liverpool, but but Liverpool is is an odd place, and it has a sense of itself as a city, and what that what that means, and uh, the football team is an expression of that, and you find that in in London and elsewhere, obviously, but um, yeah, even with the Happy Hammers, Welsh says that other football fans all secretly want to support Hibs. He believed. Right, and that's a full, oh my god all football fans think that that deep down other fans know that their team is not as good as West Ham in my case or Liverpool in your case yeah. you're unable to envisage it so it's like what you think about Liverpool is Liverpool are, uh, uh, Liverpool FC are tick and, uh, and the game and the relationship between Shankly and the team and the mm-hmm. fans is a, a demonstrates the isness of Liverpool in a way that perhaps yeah. what other art forms uh, or art forms it is an art form, form. Mm. Working class ballet. That's what you call it. Yeah, it is. It, it is an art form. It's and it's an art form which it's an art form with an audience that understands it and loves it and lives with the disappointments, defeats, and also with the with the ever renewed hope. And that's the worst thing about football. It's not a disappointment. It's, it's the hope. You know that every season you think it's going to be different. It's going to be better. But you know, another corner of your mind that's not the case. It's gonna you're going to lose. Everybody has to lose at some point. So so football is a way of articulating those kind of deep structures of social togetherness. It's a, and and you can have an enemy, right? An enemy that you really hate, but you don't want to kill them. Mm. And in a certain way you can respect them and that's interesting. So, you know, I'm meant to hate Manchester United. At a certain level I do, at a certain level I don't. You respect yes. you respect the success. You look at that organisation. You look at the way those. You look at what they've done. You, you just have to say, yeah, that's good. There's a complicit meta expression of emotions and uh, humours that may otherwise be dangerous. That yes. it's a safe forum within which to experience hatred of Manchester United you know, because you, obviously you, you've got more in common with someone who really loves Man United than you, someone who says football's stupid and it doesn't mean anything. There's no point thinking about it. Like you know, like um, I've always like what's been interesting for me has been uh, like, did my last anecdote rely on fame? Yes, it did. So I'm trying to impress you. <laughs> um, like so, like um, like uh, like sort of like because I check this like you know I know as a West Ham fan that Frank Lampard for example is detested because of the way that he left West Ham and because it was regarded that he got a leg up because Harry Redknapp was his uncle Frank Lampard Senior and Harry Redknapp and stuff right Um, sometimes sometimes when I'm at when I've been at West Ham prior to me feeling more rarefied by fame or, you know, even at the beginnings of fame where I felt sort of like I could be more legitimately connected and it didn't seem like a pose like, I was aware they hate Frank Lampard, but then I would meet Frank Lampard and I'd be like, you can't hate Frank Lampard in a real way. This is a sort of game, you know, and like, but I'd be aware that, say, if I in, in, a, in a forum like radio where I would want to talk about I met Frank Lampard, right. I would feel like, oh, no, West Ham fans will be listening to this. I should communicate. And of course, I hated him. <laughs> or in that case, I fucking hated him. Like, but, like, but actually, I sort of the point that I feel is more true is the acknowledgement that this whole thing is a kind of theatre. Yes. And whilst it, you know, and yes. like Shankly's, you know, off, you know, oft quoted, possibly plagiarised from the dude at Green Bay Packers thing of like football's not a matter of life and death. It's more, more important, important than that. Mm. Is it sort of because perhaps 
perhaps it is meta because it, it is an investment because it is a manageable forum for the limitless boundless theater of human emotions here it can be played out between white lines absolutely right absolutely right it's theater but to call it theater isn't to say it's unimportant because theater is important and the weird the weird thing about human beings is that if you tell the truth, if you, if, you, if you present something directly to human beings, they'll often not hear it. If you give it to them in the form of a story or a theatrical device or a myth, it will have an impact. And football's like that. It's an indirect theatrical presentation of all that stuff that makes us us. Right? And it's also reasonable, right? Football is about the use. It's, it's about argument. It's philosophical in that sense that you can... A lot of the best conversations, arguments I have are with... Other football fans, you know, you're ta- and you can talk reasonably on the basis of evidence back and forth, and you don't want to kill them. You, you're happy to engage with this them. This is a bit like a thing I heard once where um, someone told me that the amount of information a black cabbie has to store in his head right. past the knowledge is the same number of bits of information that you would to become an astrophysicist like the like the, the data is just different and less evidently financially less valuable data so like that so you could have a conversation with someone about football and you're ha- you believe you're ha- having as high-minded a conversation you could like if you were talking about Descartes or whatever because they're talking yeah. about justice they're talking about r- regulation they're talking about transgression and they feel enfranchised. That's the other thing, is that when you get people talking about football, is that they feel they know what they're talking about. Mm. And then you get them into that, and then you can do all sorts of great things. And they're not, they're not, inti- they're not intimidated. They know this. They know this stuff. Unless they don't know about football. Like, I mean, Unless like, they don't know about football. Yeah, like, then it's bloody intimidating. I mean, like, but, like, but what I think is really interesting, yeah, I, I like that. that it's like mm. you get people into a territory, it's like, right, we've got this thing. Mm-hmm. football we can talk about that is perhaps its function mm-hmm. because when i think about it like even when i was watching your lecture i thought like yeah i don't know like you know i'm often with the person i'm watching football with go like do you think that's because they're like the the fullbacks aren't getting forward enough and the person i'm with will normally give a more coherent argument than me i I don't sort of go for fuck's sake they need to push him forward and you know i mean i don't understand the strategy of the game i just understand i take it as a full phenomena that is about oh my god i'm in this crowd like it still engages me as when i was a little boy and i went for the first time with my dad and it's like borderline i'm frightened of this experience you know like i'm with my dad that's a bit scary i'm at this football Mm. match there's all these men that's scary this thing is big you know and then it becomes sort of exciting and transcendent and you lose yourself so it's functioning as you said like with theater that it's not a frivolity it's a way of engaging with drama togetherness Mm -hmm. tribalism that it's in it's in somehow inadvertent well not inadvertently because it is what it is because of this Mm. it is comprising numerous valuable phenomena somehow effortlessly and unconsciously perhaps yeah and uh, yeah and for example I mean, one example would be time right so you could ask the philosophical question what is time and you could say well time is the time of you know we're looking at a clock here and it goes second by second by second that's a linear idea of time yet yeah, anybody that watched a, has watched the game knows that time accelerates it slows mm. down time stretches out There'll be a passage of play where suddenly in 30 seconds, you know, extraordinary things will happen. Or if you're on the other's team, you feel it's going on forever. So time has this malleable uh, shape in football, whereas at the same time we know it's 90 minutes and the minutes are all the same. They're regular. So you can see in something like football how time, as it were, shifts and morphs and your experience of it is... The human experience of time is very different from objective time. 
Yeah. And that's how it is in the rest of our lives, is that we don't, we feel it more acutely in a phenomenon like football. It's a manageable, for, it's a manageable forum to experience that in. Mm-hmm. Another thing I think a lot about, and I'd like you to explain it, is like, when I say I support West Ham, yeah. you know, I've got this West Ham tattoo and, yeah. you know, I've got bits of West Ham bloody merch. I'm thinking I'm wearing West Ham shorts, in fact, right now. Just the shorts as I came in, yeah. So, like, but when I say I support West Ham, right, like, you know, it's a different ground, it's different owners, mm. it's different players. Like, you know, like, what is it that I am supporting when I say I support, like, you know, like season to season? There, like, you know, like I sometimes with my, my stand up, I talk about, you know, like, and only sort of really touch on the topic that, you know, because you're a bloody philosopher, so I don't think this is going to blow your little socks <laughs> off. That, 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 you know, there's no such thing as West Ham, there's no such thing as England. These are sort of co- conceptions and systems that we consensually enter, we enter an agreement that yep. there is West Ham. If you sort of move, like, you know, if you moved West Ham to Villa Park, I've already got the kit. You know, if you swapped all the players, what is it? What is it? It's a, what is it? It's a fiction, right? It's an association. It's a fiction. But its relationship to place is very specific. So mm. West Ham's relationship to Upton Park was obviously yes. very specific. And surviving that, the performance this season compared to the performance last season is obviously linked to this thing up Because there's to no real rational Of course reason. not. There's no material reason. You've got the same team, more or less, playing, you know, the, the same the same, the same, same coach, the same manager, they're playing a different stadium and they're playing differently. Mm. Uh, so there's something about that location. So I think a good decision that was made by my team was the, not to relocate from yeah. Anfield, but to stay in Anfield and to build that up. And the ownership New England Sports Ventures people, they did the same thing with the Red Sox, Boston Red Sox at Fenway Park. Here at New England Sports Ventures, we love the fans. Yeah, we love the fans. But but location, but lo- so it's a fiction and all of that. But if you go for the way, say, Milton, who was it? Wimbledon went to and Milton King. Yeah, yes. right. And th- it just it evaporated. Yeah, what right? is this thing? Because in yeah. America, the franchises move around. You can yeah. sell them, can't you? So yeah. what is it? Re- like, so play, that place worship, sanctity of place, that's a religious idea, isn't it? It is. It's a sacred. It's an idea of the sacred, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for many football fans, that's 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 the, the experience of the sacred is the ground. So what's upsetting, like when I went to the last game at Upton Park and the sort of glorification, do you know what it reminded me of is bloody in Animal Farm when they do a celebration for Boxer after they kill him, like after, you know, like in sort of the, in, in, and you come on, you've done it at school. Like, so like, um, right. Like there, it felt like there was a lots of pageantry and celebration about we're leaving Upton Park and Bobby Moore, is, there's a bit of footage of Bobby Moore turning off the lights. I mean, it's like right heartstrings, mawkish stuff. But mm. I know, and surely everyone knows that ultimately the we're not really leaving Upton Park for any reason other than money. Absolutely. So like what is this spectacle we're engaging in? And you mentioned at the beginning when you set up the idea of football is that we know that the context that it exists within is capitalist and consumerist. Yep. So how does it maintain its essence in, in a relationship? It with doesn't. It? It's, it's like an open wound football. It's, it's a contradiction that doesn't resolve itself. I think it's, it's, so you've got these deep associations. You've got all that stuff, which is like theatre. A lot of it's like religion, um, an idea of the sacred. And the whole thing is being pushed by money and that doesn't heal that doesn't that doesn't uh you can't make that go away i think to be a football fan is to live within that contradiction because you want your team to have the best team which means that you want this summer the coach to buy some really good players right to spend some money to get them that means you've got to go into the market and buy the best players and uh, all the rest of it so we know it's about money, and it's not just about money. It's about this this felt 
continuity at the level of fans. And a weird thing that happened when one Liverpool game, which is Liverpool against Borussia Dortmund last season, where we beat them in the quarterfinal, came back. I think it was uh, we beat them and they scored a goal in the last couple of minutes. Anyway, and at half time, the um, Jurgen Klopp said to the players, he reminded them of the Istanbul comeback in 2005 mm. when Liverpool finally defeated Milan. He wasn't there. None of the players were there. Mm. And most mm. of the fans weren't there. Mm. But there's something there in the kind of essence of the club which allows you to kind of tap into that and for it to find expression. So that's what's weird about football is you can have players with no actual connection with this history but they can if they can lock into it if, if uh, you want to if you want to that's totemism isn't it that's like yeah, the it, belief a, yeah, that there is a totemic relationship with Liverpool the, the liver bird logo yeah. the emblem of Liverpool so even though there is no material so doesn't that in it's itself magical magical belief yeah. is that a bit like that Spinoza deal that there is some sort of interconnected other that is only that, of which the material world is only a, a symbol of yeah 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 and, and it's not even completely I mean football is very interesting at the level of materiality because it's not really it's all material it's grass it's players it's Bodies in movement, but it's a spectacle. So I remember when I went to the Emirates for the first time years after that open the Arsenal ground. The thing that struck me walking in there for the first time is this looked like a video. It looked like a movie, and that was the point, right? Now you go into a great stadium, you look at you're looking at something which is a total fiction, a total spectacle, which is real and not real at the same time. Ooh. Kind of like movies, you know, which are real and not real at the same time. So that, I think that's that's fine, and we're not dupes of that we're not being conned at that point we, we willingly we, we go into that and uh and we make mm. our little ritual sacrifice but we're not we're, we're, we're uh, when we're doing that we're clever when we're doing that and we um yeah we're not so i know it's a disjunct with the only time when me and my girlfriend are watching something so like like for me there are some t- things what aren't worthy of me entering into the Okay, I like you know, so I won't go. Oh my god, I hope that Chris doesn't leave Sandra. I'll just go. That's badly lit. Yeah, you know I mean that means I'm not coming with you on this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's badly written. You know, but like if it's good enough, I'll go. Oh no, <laughs> you know, like I'll I'll do it with it. You know, like and I don't when I'm watching football, just go. Well, they could just pick that ball up and kick it through. Why didn't, <laughs> right. why didn't he strangle the referee then or kill that goalkeeper? You know, I accept it because it, it because of it being a live volatile thing. You know, mm-hmm. within those boundaries. You know, the one can accept it in a way that perhaps with other art forms, unless it's of a certain standard or it appeals to you or connects yeah. with you or whatever. Do you have to watch games to believe that? Do you have to watch the games live in order to make sure that West Ham win? I've not got my life has meant that I can't have on that TV kind or of something. superstition. That yeah, that kind of thing. I don't I even that. watch all West Ham games. If let's say like if if West Ham have lost, I won't watch match of the day. I think well, I'm not putting myself through that. No watch point. the game. Watch the games live in Brooklyn, and um, if I don't watch them, I think there's gonna, something terrible is going to happen. So it's yeah. a total. It's completely magical thinking, and I'm meant to be a philosopher, so it's Mythic. pathetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got to go and do my spells down at the. Go do my spells <laughs> and put my yeah put my you know nineteen seventy five Liverpool shirt on to watch it. Anyway, so yeah, there we go. I was thinking then that right. Simon should they should have you on Talk Sport and stuff because oh, I'd like, love it. Imagine if you were like. 
you know, and in Cheshire, because I, I used to, I don't listen to it as much anymore, but I used to love a phoning show where people are like, no, they shouldn't And they say, no, that's a good point, mate. So like, you can tell, and sometimes you can tell, no, this person is not making a good argument. That's, I don't agree with that. You know what I mean? Like, sort of, you know, like, I love that, that level of passion and intensity. It can be very, very beautiful. And I, for, when it was Darren Fletcher and Robbie Savage, I thought they were very good at it. They, they sort of handled that sort of conversation on Radio 5 Live, handled it very mm. well. And like, I think people would be very, like, don't you sometimes I find myself like having a conversation with someone, like, I'll think, oh, I'll see if I can angle this up a little bit into, hold on a minute, this person might want to talk about the nature of death. You know, like, and sort of, oh, yeah, death, do you yeah. try that sort of thing as with football, just like as your aperture, just sort of think, right, I might oh, be able, or do you leave it there in the cab or wherever you no, want? Oh, what? Why do you mean? What I mean? Don't I mean, you sort of think, hang on a minute, this football chat's going well, I'll start talking about death now. Like, don't you sort of think? Oh, like, yeah. Like, sometimes, like, as well, like, like say you think, Oh, I've established something with you now, like this with chatting about football. Let's take it somewhere else. Amp it up a gear. Yeah, sure. Because some people uh, don't like that transition. I do that. Like, for, I often do in it. cabs, I'll go like, you know, I've been having a good chat about West Ham or Spurs or something. Uh, and I'll go... And you flip over into death. How's your marriage going? <laughs> do you feel connected to your wife? Oh, I might snap out of fucking cab. No, but um, death, death is death's a good topic. People want to talk about death, but they want to talk about it again. They want to talk about it. I wrote a book... About how philosophers die, so 190 philosophical deaths, and people liked it because it wasn't them dying, right? And there are some very comical deaths in the history of philosophy, some very kind of odd deaths. But they're so dude got a tortoise dropped on his head. uh, Aeschylus allegedly got a tortoise dropped on his head. Like, yeah. David Baddiel does a joke of like, because it's weird that this bloke who spent his life writing about comedy, the last thing he would have thought is, fucking hell, is that right. a tortoise? <laughs> why, is, why is it coming down? And people, you know, held their breath, stabbed to death. I mean, there are some, you know... Are there, are there, is your point of your book that they are apposite and pertinent deaths for the philosophy in question? Yeah, and there are ways of bringing, there are ways of bringing the... Um, I mean, philosophy is about the good death in that sense. It's about dying... In the, so philosophy begins in Socrates with a death. He takes his own life. And philosophy is an art of dying. That's an ancient definition of the topic. Ask exactly. Moriendi. It means that um, to philosophize is to be able to die well, to die nobly, happily, contentedly, or whatever it might be. And then, so you've got that idea, which is nice, and then you can mix it up with what actually happened, which is much more messy. And people go for that. They like talking about those deaths a lot. They like the, the sort of the gore, schadenfreude. It's pornographic and a bit distant, and that, that makes them happy. That thing you just said about dying well, like when, this is an oddly personal thing to reveal, like that when me and my girlfriend got back, me and my girlfriend went out of each other years ago, like 10, 11 years ago, and when we got back together, oh, yeah. like, and it was like a point of, we kind of got back together with like, there's no point us getting together unless we're going to be together and have children. There's no, we're not going to just date, you know, like, you know, so it's like, so really, really quickly. It was mm, like, you know, and serious. I'm, yeah, really serious, really quickly because otherwise it would have just been futile. And like, so, and I was very declarative about that. And actually, so was Laura. And I like, but there was a bit where I sort of went, like, where I sort of very, I don't know, it felt very sort of raw. I went like, everyone's going to die that we love we're going to lose it. it's going to happen our parents are all going to die I don't want to be on my own I would like me and you can do that we're going to, like, we'll be able to go there we'll be able to go there together mm-hmm. like and it's sort of like you know I can't even think about it with my cat dying like the idea like I sort of every time because he's getting older now my cat every time I look at him I sort of feel like prepare prepare you know and like that sort of and like so like that thing about philosophy being about to die well is about somehow embracing the certainty of like right 
it's mm. happening. You can't, like the idea would be it's not happening, <laughs> but that's been removed from the table. <laughs> like so, like uh, so, like so, like. But as it is on the table, we have to make our life a kind of that's what that philosophy that's a preparation for yeah. death. Yeah, you got a kid, right? Yeah, my Mabel. So and so have I, uh, and so and it would be. It would be the worst thing imaginable would be for my kid to die before me. Yeah. So in a sense, with the thing about children, which is interesting, it's the wrong word, interesting, but it's so important, is you're imagining an afterlife. If things go well, you'll die and they'll go on. Yeah. And hopefully it will be all right for them. And so you're living. So the thing, I think the, the great argument for kids is an argument for the afterlife in that sense, that you believe in the life of those that come after, namely the kids will carry on for a little bit and uh, have a nice time. So it makes you a little bit less selfish, a little bit less preoccupied with your own death, because this is going to this is going to come to an end. Hopefully it will come to an end well. But those people that you have loved and you've touched, they will carry on. It has practically had that impact. It has, like, you know, that has been the practical impact of having a child. Has been a kind of diminishing of my self-importance. I can still get it up pretty high on a on a good day, <laughs> <laughs> but like, uh, but like, I do feel like you know, like when I'm spending time around, I like it. it makes me realise that. Um, what Gareth brought to mind is that, like, I, I was told a curious thing about Rupert Murdoch by someone who had worked closely with him. Uh-huh. Like, I go, give us the juice on Rupert Murdoch then. And they went, he doesn't believe that he's going to die. Not in a kind of like a, you know, in a weird... Cryogenic, freezing way. Yeah, or in a mystical way, just in a, he doesn't behave or think like he's going to. So if you go, you're not allowed to buy that conglomerate because it transgresses third laws. It's a, well, I fucking will be able to because I'll just wait till those circumstances occur. So it's like an odd... Yeah, what's his name? Mephistophelian. Mephistophelian sort of sense that he is transcendent of the rules of materialism. I think that tells you everything that's wrong with Rupert Murdoch. I mean, the 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 essayist philosopher Montaigne said that you should have death in your mouth, in the food that you eat, the drink that you imbibe. Death is always there. And he had this lovely story. He said that in ancient Rome they used to bring in during feasts they bring in skeletons, and shake the skeletons at the feasters, saying, "You'll be like this soon." I always think it'd be a great thing to bring back into New York. Yeah, bring around skeletons. Say, I'm not you, going for dinner at Augustus's again. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, it was just a bone jangling thing when I was trying to eat my creme brulee. Done my nutting. Yeah, mm. but no, to keep death in your mouth is is, is it's it's it's, it's important. Because there's that thing in Norwich Cathedral, like where it says, like there's some sort of bloody tombstone thing of a skeleton and written in antiquated English. I imagine medieval English. I don't know. I'm not very good. Who knows? But like it sort of says, I as you are now looking upon this, yeah. I once was, and as I am, you shall soon be. That we wish, yeah, that you can't. Because otherwise, yeah, what does it lead to? It leads to immorality, selfishness, decadence, hedonism. Mm-hmm. So, in the words of Jarvis Copper, Cocker, help the aged. Help the aged. You know, one day that you'll that we're just like you, yes, <laughs> smoking yes. facts and sniffing glue. <laughs> you know, and uh, and it's that that's important. So, having death in your mouth is really really important. I think people that deny death are really denying the conditions of what it means to be a human being. So, to be a human being is to be someone that dies. So, it's pretty important. It makes you. It means you're unaware, doesn't it? It's a kind of unconsciousness not to accept death. I, I realizing in my own life, my model for excuse me understanding my own life is a like a twelve step addiction model. So, like right. I was a drug addict for a long time, mm-hmm. and then like worked the twelve. You know, now I have abstinence based recovery. The philosophy of uh, 
addiction is 12 steps. Which the first one is an acknowledgement of defeat. I'm powerless over drugs and my life has become unmanageable. Second, so that means I can't do it no more. Mm. And the unmanageable part is the acceptance that once I take drugs, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know what I'll do or what I'll think or what I'll become, like the Hulk yeah. or something. Two is uh, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves in the right. cause can restore us to sanity. So right. that's the principle of hope that change is a possibility. Right. Three, made a decision to l- turn our life and our will over to the power of God as we understood God. Right, That's right, 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 right. Of, yeah. For obvious reasons. And then four and five are made a fearless and far moral inventory of ourselves and then shared it with another person. And like, so it, like, you can see that there are quite timeless religious principles in mm-hmm. this model. Six is an acknowledgement of the flaws that you have. Seven is a willing to give up, the willingness to give up those flaws. Eight is a list of people or institutions that you've harmed. Nine is the process of making amends unless to do so would make the situation worse. Ten is a continual aware, like a continual awareness. And when you do inevitably err, making a note of it and being willing to make amends. Eleven is conscious contact. Now that's what I think is interesting. And in the awareness of deaths, mm-hmm. use the awareness. Conscious contact with uh, you know through prayer and meditation, like meaning for in my case that there are things that can take me out of the flow of my life, and in this moment I'm all right. But if mm. something like that, and I'm most easily triggered by fear and desire, if someone frightens me mm. or challenges my ego, right. I'll get hot, you know. Or if someone, if or if sexual provocation happens, those mm. are the two things that are most likely to make me abandon this thing and go Vroom, off. I go then bye, and like you know, so like mm. ten and eleven are, are about that, and then twelve, curiously, is the suggestion that our lives should be devoted to service, to live by these principles, not just in alcohol but in all of our affairs, and to live in service. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a very like, even though you start doing it for drink and drugs, it becomes. Everything you sort of think like, oh, I get attached in relationships, oh, I get attached in work, I get attached around money, I get attached around sex, pornography it becomes sort of universally applicable. Uh, in the recital of that template, were there identifiable uh, tropes that are applicable throughout philosophy? Yeah, I think it's a kind of it's 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 more it, for me. I mean, the twelve. Step, I, I'm, I know some people that have been through the twelve step. Or live live according to it mm. um, in 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 New York, and um, it is a kind of almost um, Calvinist practice. You you begin with acknowledgement of your own sinfulness. Right? You begin with sin, and then you keep a record. You keep a, a record. It's about a kind of discipline and uh, an asceticism, and I think that's. That's very important. I think we cannot, well, we can live without asceticism, but it's better to, I mean, that that discipline and that structure, uh, are really, what religion, how religion provided that um, is really important. And to jettison religion often risks going back to a kind of selfish hedonism. It has so, happened. That's what's happened, isn't it? Yeah, it is what's happened. Because so there think, is a religion, and that religion is consumerism and capitalism, and it's a it's a religion of the self, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a religion of the self. It's a you know we we, we had a, a century of the self, as Adam Curtis would say, last century, and that's kind of carrying on very strongly. So I think that what you're describing in those twelve steps is a kind of way of disciplining and shaping the self in order that at the twelfth step it could be something about service. Yes, and that's not easy, right? The idea that we're 
decent people, as I was saying ages ago, you know, that can just sound like we, well, we're just, you know, we're, we're naturally decent people. But there's a kind of, we have to also acknowledge the fact that we, we screw up and we're selfish and we're messed up. And therefore, to, to be someone who is of service to somebody else requires a kind of discipline. And, that's, that, and that, that requires education as well. Is your philosophy of use to you in your practical in in praxis it's how i it's it, yeah for me it's i mean i i began you know i'm from a very ordinary kind of background and for me it was just a way of making sense of the world and for me it was you know the world opened up for me through pop music right it was it was uh, it was bowie and stuff like that, that opened the world up and then it became a question of making it more articulate and poetry and all that stuff but then philosophy for me is just the way in which i kind of makes sense of things. So for me, it's it's in my head running all the time when I'm walking around. And it's, So what about today, like on your way here and getting here and stuff? What What is occurring philosophically for you when you've got to travel to Leicester Square to do a podcast? What? How is it pertinent now? I am thinking about... Well, so I spent last night uh, thinking about how I do this. And I was thinking about the Messiah complex because I saw that when it came out. So I went back to that and looked at it. And I was looking at a number of the themes that you were looking at. So I'm thinking about that philosophically. I'm thinking about, you know, so you're someone that has been um, um, obviously con- odd, oddly oddly vilified in, in, in peculiar ways. And I find that, so I was, you know, I've, I find that um, that must that must be weird, right? That must be weird, and it seems to me that what you're trying to do um, is something you know fundamentally uh, decent and honourable. You're using this in order to uh, to 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 put forward a certain program uh, to to enable a kind of uh, a serious reflection on deep stuff through media and through comedy in a way that's really important. So. I was thinking about that, and I've wrote a book about comedy, about humour as well. Oh yeah. I think humour is really. Oops. I think humour is is a kind of form of basic intelligence. It, you know, it, it gives us. So when we're understanding a joke, telling a joke, what's required there conceptually is incredibly complicated. You've got to know a lot about patterns, haven't you? You've got to know a lot about patterns and systems, and you've got to know a lot about form and when yeah. to disrupt form and what's acceptable ways and what's as close as you, in the type of comedy that interests me, how close you can go to the deconstructing, challenging or, con- or conflagration without self-immolation like how mm. like you know like so often when I'm in a live situation like this is why it's very difficult for me to work in media environments that are primarily defined by restriction and most main mainstream media you know, my mate Matt some time ago said it's just a table to put adverts on so and you mm. feel that very much you know like you feel like oh you can't say anything here like I've done television things where you feel like this has not got any relationship to truth. This is no relationship right. to truth. Now, for me, comedy has a relationship to truth. Got yes. one of the essential truths because this is like, like we were talking about. You know, have a good death. Like that. This is bullshit. You know, like you know. So like, I, I like the slipping mask. I like the continual glancing behind the curtain that comedy brings you the awareness mm. that this is a game like as much as i believe i support west ham i'm entering into a belief system a faith system that like even the significance of doing this podcast like mm. you know, what is any of it like you know while i'm atrophying into nothing yeah sure but i mean but with, with comedy i think it's that the a great comic is someone who can because people always think that you know 
comedy is about the punchlines, about the laugh or whatever. And it seems to me that great comedy is never about that. But you can, if you can get the rhythms and the timing and all of that right, you get someone to laugh. And at that point, you can hit them yeah. in, a, in a second wave with a little bit of truth, right? Just what Lenny Bruce used to do. He, it wouldn't be about the laugh. It would be about what happens next. Right? You open someone up with a laugh and then you hit them with... Uh, something more profound and the thing about comedy which is interesting is there's a kind of um, well okay there's there's an I I couldn't imagine doing stand-up because it's it's always struck me as the most kind of honest art in a strange way because of the exposure that there's just you and you know if, if you don't if it doesn't work it's your fault and every moment you confront the possibility of failure Right. And it's that that kind of tightrope walk. I can pretend to do that, giving a talk or a lecture, but I've got a text to run back to. and I'm not meant to be playing for laughs anyway. Yeah, right? yeah, that's a relief. And that's that's a relief. So I can run back to all sorts of safety zones. But if I'm out there and people have paid, you know, good money just to see, to be entertained and you've got to take them to somewhere interesting. That's that's I couldn't imagine. You've doing got to that. believe that there, you said tightrope walk and the tightrope is the is the image. You've got to believe that there is a line that you're walking, that you're not on your own out there that you're stepping out onto a rope and it's impossible to step off of the tightrope if you walk I just don't think about those tightrope walkers I mean I walk on a pretty straight line when I'm on a pavement it's just the the addition of height that makes it <laughs> nerve wracking you know so like a, for me it's like the belief that no, I'm walking to there and if I can remain contacted connected in those moments then mm-hmm. I feel pretty safe the only times things have gone wrong for me comedically is when I've lost the connection then I might that means I might misjudge what I say or I might worse of all I like fall off it. It's only happened one time. Please God, it won't happen again. Like that. Once you remember Gareth at Hackney Empire. Like I was just like I had sort of like some sort of negative epiphany of like self awareness and self consciousness of like you know just standing there and just like what's going on? Like it's sort of like a, like I lost the game. I lost the sort yeah. of the connection because for me there is a shamanism to it. It's about like, you know, conjuring energies and going through different levels and taking people to the level where you can be explicit and rude and disgusting and then into the level of connecting with God. And then like, like, you know, like, but suddenly I became sort of like in that particular occasion, I became self-conscious and really aware of what it was that was happening. Like I could, death was in my mouth, you know, and I didn't like the taste of it. (laughs) Dying on stage, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I like sort of had to go off and walk away. It was weird. Like the spell, like there is a spell that you can't break that spell. You have to believe in entirely in your like your legitimacy for being there and I could never do that as on the basis of just being an individual because I don't think well it's just too bizarre so I like that's why I've sort of have to you know either it's self-hypnosis or it's something I have to go into a state where I'm like I'm doing like it's some of it's very sort of grounded and practical like these people have paid money to come in and they've had yeah. to park their car so you better make sure they get the minimum they're thoroughly entertained and like I'll give everything I've got to ensure it and then the other thing I think I want to do is I want to reach in them so someone told me this thing about the Pentecost I don't even know if I understood it correctly because but the thing I understood was the Holy good Spirit. anyway yeah they were saying that like Christ would uh, this is where we're going <laughs> like uh, would say like you know talk to a thousand people and each person would hear the thing they needed to hear mm-hmm. like the fire is lit in them mm-hmm. and I think of that idea and that notion that you want people to feel connected that you want feel people to, people to feel connected so like, and and, the, and because you could not engineer that you could not manage that the only thing you can do is make a deep commitment to your truth right in that moment because engineering it would be to fabricate it would be impossible and it requires enormous uh, risk as well I think it was that show. It's a famous Richard Pryor show after he 
you know Sunset Strip after one of his exactly and there were two nights and one and everybody was that there to see which, yeah and he and he just screwed up he right just he just shit. he just he just couldn't do it and he I think he wandered off after twenty minutes the next night he killed it yeah night next two night he killed he's it. one of the pro, yeah the textbook prior performances yeah. that we all carry with us as like there he is doing it. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I think it's been like a, a, a wonderful conversation, and I, and I think that what's been interesting for me is that we began with uh, talking about truth and authenticity, uh-huh. and we've ended with talking about it on a personal level. Like that, you sort of that your the, the way that you approach life is how does philosophy authentically relate moment to moment to mm-hmm. the, your encounters with culture and people and mm-hmm. situations. But like, so that we end on a, like an all-encompassing and potentially. Uh, you know, long <laughs> like question like Gareth like the Gareth is like, you wanted to ask what is philosophy in the 21st century what is the relevance of it in the 21st century and I'd like you to incorporate into that if you would mm. like with Cornel West saying that the most powerful and provocative philosopher mm. writing about the complex relationship between ethical subjectivity and reinvigorated democracy why do you think like you know obviously it must have some relationship to that so what is it that why do you think he's, I mean, you know, like, take a leaf out of my book and don't be so bashful about giving yourself compliments. Why do you think he said this about ethical, this relationship between ethical subject, subjectivity and reinvigorated democracy? And what does that say about philosophy? Because with, with Cornell, it's, it's, you know, he's someone that is um, a Christian. Oh, right. Uh, he's, um, you know, a, a philosopher and a Christian. He's never worked in a philosophy department. His techniques, his rhetorical techniques have very much come out of, uh, Black Baptist churches, and he can. Um, you watch him with an audience. I've done it a few times in New York, and it's it's something. Really, audience is a different color for a start. That's good, and they they want different things, and you get to be the the kind of white boy in that context. And it's nice. interesting. It's interesting. It's interesting. I like, so, I like to be the white boy once in a while, right? And he, uh, it's easier than when I have to be the black man because uh, oh, it's bad casting for a start. <laughs> so, um, you know, so a lot of the stuff I've been doing over the years, Cornell has been, you know, receptive to, and that's very nice. Why is he saying this about ethical subjectivity and reinvigorate, reinvigorate democracy? Because I'm not I sure I know what to... either of those things mean. Okay, well, I'm not sure I do ethical either. Ethical subjectivity. The, the... Personal ethics. Yeah. So, the, uh... so personal ethics relate to a reinvigorated democracy. So for me, ethics is not some... Where you went to university. Yeah, not some set of moral principles. It's not some set of abstract axioms. It's about a personal commitment, a visceral commitment. So I try and take ethics down to questions of um, existential commitment. I'm a kind of existentialist. That's really where I started. That's another word. I don't know really what it means, even though I use it a lot. Well, it's people that believe that all those philosophical questions have to be related to your lived existence, how you are. Day to day, in the street with other people, and um, so it's at that level. So, ethics, whether you believe in X, Y, or Z, utilitarianism, deontology, or virtue ethics is neither here nor there. It's about how those things are linked to the kind of the the visceral register of one's selfhood. So, and that's that what a, Sartre and Kierkegaard were about. Then is making sure this relates to your visceral selfhood. That's what yeah, existentialism yeah. means in that context. Yeah, and so for Kierkegaard, that's what faith is. Faith isn't about belief in God or belief in you know, and a series of abstract theological propositions. It's about one's individual existential comportment towards the world. That's faith. And what's it mean to be philosophical in the 21st century? It's the same as it's always meant, but um, there's more kale salad, I suppose, more coffee bars and things like that. 
Um, I think it's also the question of media. So paradoxically, um, philosophy is doing quite well. The, 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 the internet has been good for philosophy. So it's been very bad for literature and very bad for kind of art forms that require, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of careful reading. It's been very good for short form idea based stuff. So I do this column with the New York Times, a philosophy column with the New York Times, and we get big readerships because we do little 800 page think pieces and all sorts of stuff. And there's an audience for that. So, so oddly, philosophy is flourishing at this point. There are these nights of philosophy that are happening all over the world where people stay out for 12 hours and listen to lectures, and it's great. Not 12 hours, mate. Come on. You'd have to be there for 12 hours. <laughs> but there's oh, a good. You know, and there's a I bar. Start and there's, it a one hour one. <laughs> there's cool people. You know, it's, it's become something. Philosophy, become, philosophy has become something slightly cool, which is good. Because it wasn't like that when I was a student. It was kind of fusty. It was, was sort it? Of, it was sort of leather arm patches on the tweed jacket, and it was very Oxbridge dominated. It's also a very important thing for me is the fact that I went to the University of Essex and we were kind of, it was like scumbag college and we were against that from the... from Young Ones episode? Exactly, exactly. Well remembered. University challenge where the rich kids always won. <laughs> My daddy owns a, pure, a Porsche. I have a Porsche. So like that. And then uh, there was a sense in which it was about the life of ideas and all but also it's free education right so i got a free education i got a grant from hertfordshire county council and off i went and i read and studied and it was great and it was of a piece with political life as well so it was cool and um but it wasn't it wasn't you know it wasn't so, so it's been. So I lost my track. Lost my track. Well, it seems there. to me that, me that you were saying that, that philosophy is essentially something that is your lived experience and something that has to have a, a dimension to it. That's about your comportment and your behaviour and treating other people. I mean, I heard an undercurrent of love, and you talked briefly about like the faith that Kierkegaard says was yeah. present in existentialism. And faith without love is a clanging symbol, St. Paul says, right? So love is what it's all about. And this comes back to the question of death. Oh, what do you mean? The, it's just the racket. It's just people banging on it, yeah. Boom, 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 or, or a loud, clingy version of that. So everything has to be un undergirded by love. And the question that philosophy has been not so good is, is tried to deal with over the years, and which is, which is deeper, I think, in the religious traditions is the question of love. Yes. And whether love is something which for example, survives death or not. Whether you, when you're in love with someone, you're in love with them in perpetuity. And it'd be nice to die with them, but in a sense, your love carries on. And so love, this is why uh, love as love of God is is such a profound way of thinking about love, right? And it also means, this, this is important, this is something important, is that... Um, is that uh, we imagine that we're individuals, we're kind of, we're, we're complete individuals in the world and then we can kind of contract ourselves to others. And that's love. And that's not love. Right? Love is always about deconstructing or dismantling that self, that individual that you are, in order to be someone who's capable of loving another person. So it means that you begin from this idea of this individual as a kind of a husk and you've got to strip that all away and open that up in order to be worthy of love. And that idea of love is one that you find in different religious traditions. But I think it has to be made sense. That's really what love between people has to be, you know, and it's difficult.
Yes. The most difficult thing. I think that's a very beautiful place to end a podcast, talking about stripping away the self till there is nothing but love. Because uh, that's what I've been doing, actually, all this morning. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Simon. Thank you Pleasure. for your lovely contribution. Thank you for doing this with us. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. That show's sponsored by me and my Rebirth Tour. Next few shows are sold out, but there's still some tickets available for some. Go and have a look. I'm in some weird places. Weird places. I'm in Grimsby. So come on. Russellbrand.com for tickets. Subscribe. Review it. Get us right up those charts. We'd like to be Champions League ranked. Very, very minimum. Thank you. <laughs>